You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Well, it is good to be with you this morning. Please meet me in the book of Matthew, chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, and as you're getting um, your way there, let me rush to express my gratitude to Pastor um, John for extending such a kind invitation and for allowing me to preach the word to the flock that God has entrusted to him. Matthew 22. Starting in verse 41. And let us be reminded that this is the inerrant, infallible word of God. Amen. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the the son of David. He said to them, how is it then? That David in the spirit calls him Lord. Saying the Lord said to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord. How is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions here in verse 41 we find ourselves at the end of what appears to be an intellectual trial a debate between Jesus and what I like to call the Jewish Union the Herodians the Sadducees and and the Pharisees which represented the political and intellectual spiritual authority of that time and Matthew gives us an insight into the Machiavellian nature of this encounter. Verse 15 tells us that they were seeking to entangle Jesus in his words to arrest him. You could almost feel the tension in that place, no? Uh, The disciples and the crowds were about to um, witness a momentous confrontation. And then maybe the disciples were unsure about Jesus' chances against this Jewish nobility. These groups were considered to have the the finest minds. They had authority. Um, They were intellectually savvy. They were cunning as well as dishonest. The political party, the Herodians led the first prosecution. A Jewish political party whose main interest was the preservation of Herod's dynasty. And they wanted to trap Jesus over political matters, but but Jesus silenced them. The second prosecution was led by the intellectual authority, the Sadducees. A group of Jewish scholars who did not believe in the metaphysical. And they wanted to trap Jesus over one of the most critical and theological discussions of their time. The resurrection. 
Jesus silenced them. The third and final prosecution was led by the spiritual authority, the Pharisees. The primary opponents of Jesus' ministry. And you know, they wanted to preserve their prominence amongst the people. And they sought to trap Jesus over his understanding of the Torah. But Jesus silenced them. And Jesus was able to succeed in his rebuttal against each of his opponents because he knew more than anyone that behind the question there is always a questioner. The questions don't exist in isolation. That there was a real question underneath their question. A secret motive. An evil desire. Deceptive disposition. This is why Jesus never seemed to answer any of the questions they asked. Have you noticed that? His responses often appeared utterly unrelated to the topic. But his opponents in the heart of hearts knew exactly what he was referring to. Which is why they were not able to respond. Because he punctured their duplicity. He silenced them. He shut their mouths. As he exposed and dismantled their concealed agendas. But this debate is not over. Now in verse 41 we come to the cross-examination phase. Now it is Jesus' turn to ask a question. So he addresses the leaders of this union. The organizers of this plot. The Pharisees. So he looks at them. And he asks them, what do you think about the Christ? Huh. That's an important question, no? A very important question. In fact, it is the cardinal question that every person over the face of this earth must ask and answer correctly. That is, what do you think about the Christ? What do you think about Jesus? What comes to your mind when you think about Jesus? It sounds simple, no? Maybe the Pharisees thought that this was a simple question, but it is not. For the answer to this question will determine your destiny. I've had the, the privilege to pastor in three distinct cultural settings in, in the Hispanic community, um, in upper middle class white America, but also in the African American context. And, and I have learned that regardless of the sociological nuances and complexities and economic realities and, and cultural differences, Jesus, in one way or another, is often viewed in the same way. As an escape mechanism. As an escape from economic realities or racial oppression and disparities or um, emotional distress or marital problems or the consequences of dumb decisions. Whether we like to admit it or not, we all tend to view Jesus as the fixer of our problems. And despite how wrong he was about everything, and I want you to hear me clearly, he was wrong about everything. Karl Marx was correct 
in his critique of how people perceive Christianity. He used to say that religion, in direct relation to Christianity, is the opium of the people. The people come to Jesus to change what they cannot change themselves. Primarily their social or emotional condition. That, that some treat Jesus as an existential drug. To numb how they feel about their plight. But here's the question. What if, what if none of those things change? What if Jesus does not save us from what we want him to save us from? What if your struggle with depression continues to linger? What if your marriage continues to struggle? What if your economic situation continues to deteriorate? What if Jesus does not come through for us? Are we going to be disappointed with Jesus? You see, Jesus is not the problem. But how we come to him. How we perceive him. How we understand him. That is why German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, dismissing Christianity altogether, would offer an alternative. And he said, I'm offering you Christians the ubermensch. What he used to call the superhuman. And he argued, you Christians keep wasting your time seeking this utopian outcome in Christianity. There you have it. How is that going? Has your suffering ended? Has your suffering been eradicated? You don't need God. God is dead. We have killed him. What you need is an overrealized human. And you can become that yourself. In fact, today we love superheroes because of Nietzsche. Nietzsche is the one who created the concept of superheroes. And superheroes are so loved by so many people, including grown men. Sadly. Because human psychology continues to posit that we do long for someone like us to save us out of the mess we are in. So we tend to see Jesus as a superhero. Was he a man? Sure. Did he seem to have superpowers? Yeah. I bet he can save us from our needs. And this Nietzschean mentality has permeated our understanding of of Jesus. And history confirms that there is a dangerous misunderstanding between who Jesus is and what he did. Between his identity and his assignment. Listen, the important distinction between Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord and, and due to the effects of the enlightenment the church underwent a dangerous shift from exalting the godness and, and the holiness and the lordship of Jesus to uh, an exaggerated overplay uh, on Jesus as Savior. 
And this has allowed many people, regardless of their culture, to embrace many aspects of Christianity while remaining unchanged in their inner being. Why? Well, because a Savior does not demand anything of you. A Savior does not require anything from you. A Savior does not have authority over your life. In fact, a Savior cannot tell you how you should live your life. A Savior simply gives what your heart desires. And what are the implications of this, brothers and sisters? That, that you can appreciate a Savior. That you can thank a Savior. You may even love a Savior, but you will never bow to a Savior. And unless you bow to the Lordship of this Savior, you can't be saved. Therefore, in order for us to understand His saving, biblically, we must understand His identity correctly. For what He did on the cross is the means by which we can be right with who he is. And that is precisely what Matthew has communicated throughout the narrative of the gospel of Matthew. You see, the Jews loved Jesus in his saving. You know, feeding the hungry, healing the sick, bringing people back to life. But as soon as Jesus began To demand complete allegiance. They threw stones at him. Oh pick up your cross and follow me. Nah. Can't do that. Deny yourself. Oh, I love myself. Sell everything that you have. And do what I say. I cannot do that. You cannot love your mother. Or your father. Or your brother. Or your sister. Or your girlfriend. Or your spouse. Or whomever. More than me. can do that. That is why Jesus went from thousands upon thousands of followers to 120 scared disciples. It has been said that Jesus began what is known as the church shrinkage movement. They all loved him as Savior, but they despised him as Lord. And that is what Jesus is after in this passage. He's basically saying, do you want to understand the son of David? You must first understand the Son of God. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees responded, the son of David. What kind of question is that? Ask any Jew around here. Everybody knows that the Christ is the son of David. In fact, that is the second thing that we memorized after the Shema. Everybody knows that he is the son of David. Then Jesus in his unique way replies, how is it then? Hmm. That David in the spirit calls him Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, now how is he his son? And in a masterful way, Jesus exposes their misunderstanding of the Christ. You all say that Christ is the son of David. Why don't we go to David and ask him what he thinks about the Christ. So he takes them to Psalm 110. The most quoted or alluded Old Testament passage in the New Testament. 27 times. And it is so. 
because it is the most jam-packed messianic lordship passage of the Old Testament in the New Testament. It speaks prophetically about the lordship of this Messiah, which is why Peter calls David a prophet in Acts chapter 2. So he takes them to Psalm 110, and he, David says in verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And if you read the whole passage, Psalm 110 in its entirety is about the lordship of Christ. And Jesus tells them that David overhears an inter-Trinitarian conversation between Yahweh and Adonai. Between the Father and the Son. Between Yahweh and His Master and Lord. In your Bibles, the first word Lord, in all caps, is what is known as the Tetragrammaton. The name Yahweh. That is the name of God. The second Lord in your Bibles, capital L-O-R-D in small caps, is the Hebrew word Adoni, which means Master, Lord, or Sovereign. That is the title by which Yahweh is known. And David is saying that Yahweh is having a conversation with his, his Sovereign. Huh. Interesting, no? He's having a conversation with his Lord. Referring to Jesus. And Yahweh tells Adoni. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. You're speaking prophetically about Jesus' coronation after his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. It is precisely what Paul speaks about in the old, oldest Christian hymn, the Carmen Christi, found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, when Paul tells the Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who although he was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in the human form. He what? Humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross. Therefore. And I love this part. Yahweh. <laughs> has highly exalted him and has given him a name that is above all names that at the name of Jesus every, every knee in heaven, on earth and on the earth shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Adoni to the praise of God the Father that is David's Lord this is David's Lord. And according to Paul in Philippians 2 this Lord was before he became I'll let you process that after the service. <laughs> that this Jesus was Lord before he was a Savior. And he is Lord because he is the pre-existing God. He is Lord because by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible, invisible. Whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is Lord because he is before all things. And, and all things are held together in him. But he is also Lord because Yahweh the Father has crowned him as king. And has subjugated all his authority under his feet. And his authority is cosmic. 
in heaven, on earth, and under earth. And David is saying, this Jesus is my cosmic Lord. Therefore, Jesus continues. If Christ is the Lord of David, how? I want you to underline that. How we see his son? I mean, you see, you see the complexity of the question. And there is a riddle here. Jesus is messing with their minds. And, and maybe the Pharisees were like, bro, what are you talking about? What, what is this? And Jesus is going somewhere. Jesus is the son of David insofar as it relates to his earthly mission. That the son of God became a man through the lineage of David to live the life that we could not live. Thus fulfilling the requirements of the law. But also to die the death that you and I deserve. For expiation and propitiation for the sins of his people. But Jesus, he's the Lord of David because Jesus is God. He's the Lord of David because he was the Lord of David before he was the son of David. And if he's the Lord of David, he's also the Lord of the Jews. And if he's the Lord of the Jews, he is also the Lord of the Pharisees and, and the Herodians and the Sadducees and the Gentiles and the pseudo-atheists and the skeptics and the irreligious. And, and he's also the Lord of Satan and, and his demons and, and all principalities and all his enemies. That is why Yahweh says to Adoni, I will put your enemies under your feet. Speaks about the comprehensive subjugation of everybody under the feet of Jesus. But you know what, beloved? He is your Lord. And he is my Lord. And we do not make him Lord. He is Lord. After Jesus replied, they were all left dumbfounded, you know. They didn't dare to ask any more questions. In fact, the title Son of David is no longer used by anyone after this encounter. So here's the question. Why did Jesus see the need to correct their understanding of himself? Don't miss this. If Jesus is Lord, he has ultimate authority. And if he has ultimate authority, he must rule every area of our lives. And if he, if he rules over and must rule over every area of our lives, we're not in charge. And that is precisely what we despise as sinners. Because it goes to the root of our sin, autonomy from God. That is why the Lordship of Christ is the emphasis of the redemptive work of Christ in the New Testament. You know how many times the New Testament refers to Jesus as Savior? 22 times. That, that sounds like a lot, no? Jesus as Lord, 380 times. Let's go to the primary on evangelism, the book of Acts. Jesus as Savior, two times. Jesus as Lord over 31 times. Let's go to the Gospels. The witnesses of Jesus. Jesus as Savior. Two times. Jesus as Lord. 116 times. The book of Matthew. 
How many times does Matthew refer to Jesus as Savior? Never. <laughs> Jesus as Lord. 30 times. What is going on in here? Ha have we missed something? Yeah. <laughs> A lot. Why? B because we have inverted, even unintentionally, the emphasis. Because it leads to a type of Christianity that does not interfere with our sense of autonomy and control. And that Christianity is Christless. Because unless Christianity is grounded in the Lordship of Christ, that Christianity is not Christianity at all. It is very common for us to come to Jesus to get what we think he offers, not who he is. It is very common for us to come to Jesus and for the object of our seeking and our faith to be placed on perceived benefits, not on the one who gives the benefits. Jesus, I want salvation. I want to be out of hell. I want you to give me health and prosperity and, and, and comfort. I want you to end my struggles and my, and my pain. I want a better marriage. But you... <laughs> You can stay out of the picture. And believe it or not, brothers and sisters, that is the prevalent view of contemporary Christianity. We want the benefits. We do not want the owner of the benefits. And that signals that we do not understand what salvation is. Is Jesus the Savior? Of course he is. And for that we praise him. But why is he a savior? Listen to this. Salvation is not a deliverance from a what. But from a who. Three things I want you to take home. You must understand who. You must be saved from. We must be saved from God. From his wrath. From his justice. From himself. Hell is not the absence of God. Hell is the very presence of God in his wrath. We must be saved from him. And because we must be saved from him, we also must be saved by him. Because a mere human cannot do that. That is why the name Jesus means God saves. That he came down to, to save us from himself. But also, you must understand who you must be saved for. You must be saved for God. What is salvation? Freedom for us to do what we want? Salvation grants us the freedom for us to do what he says. That is why the New Testament calls believers doulos or slaves. Paul, the slave of Christ. Peter, the slave of Christ. Jude, the slave of Christ. Jesus told his disciples, you are indeed my disciples if you do 
what I command. The greatest omission in our understanding of the Great Commission is that little part at the end that says, teach them to obey what I command. Salvation is for God. We are saved from God. We are saved by the Lord. And we are saved for the Lord. Therefore, what Jesus did on the cross, Savior, is the means by which we can be right with who He is, Lord. And in that, my brothers, His love shone forth. Why? Because God should have killed us instead. And instead of doing that, He crushed His own Son. That is love. And what is the response? Bowing. What should be our response? Surrender. That's true repentance. Repentance is not feeling sorry. Although feeling sorry is part of repentance. Judas felt sorry and did not repent. Repentance is not ascertaining certain facts. Although believing certain facts is part of saving repentance. Satan believes all the facts yet he does not repent. What is biblical saving repentance? A confession and an admission of our offense to a holy God and a turning in our serving. We must turn in our serving from serving ourselves to serving the living God. Before I leave, I know that some of you are suffering in this place and I want to address you. Maybe you have come to Jesus hoping to get an escape from your suffering. And you have realized that that's not necessarily what he offers. He may eradicate your suffering or he may not. That is his prerogative. In fact, he may leave the suffering to last a while as a means of a sovereign God to keep you close and dependent on him. But this is what he promises if you come. He promises to grant you peace in the midst of your suffering. Not a temporal peace, but a peace that surpasses all understanding. He also promises you to take upon himself all your anxieties in the midst of your suffering. He also promises to sustain you in the midst of your suffering. And he promises to intercede on your behalf in the midst of your suffering. Why? Because he understands. You may be wondering, uh, how does he understand? Oh, this cosmic Lord who demands complete allegiance experience the trauma of a broken world. So he can sympathize with us because he went through it himself. And he's promising you to never leave you nor forsake you. But you must bow. You must surrender to him. That is the Lord of David. And it is the Lord we must serve. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy, and for your word. Father, you bring people back to life through the preaching of your word. It is your word. And your word is powerful. Father, I pray. And I ask that you would do a work, a miracle in your people. 
in the hearts of your people, but also in the hearts of those who you brought in this morning. That you may change them completely for your glory alone. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.